Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the third annual Josephine Barry Weiss Interdisciplinary Humanities Seminar. I'm Linda Woodbridge. I'm the Weiss Chair uh, in the Humanities and Professor of English. And uh, I would like to welcome you all in honor of Josephine Barry Weiss and Bill Weiss, the very generous sponsors uh, of this series. And uh, they have a couple of members of the family here. They weren't able to be here themselves for the first lecture. They're in Florida. But um, Joe Weiss's sister, B. Mellinger, is here. Joe and her husband down here. <laughs> oh, Joe Weiss's sister. Please thank them on, on behalf of all of us. The first year in this series, the topic was, for those of you who weren't here, 400 years ago, uh, a decade in the life of Europe and the Americas, 1599 to 1609. It was instructed by Marika Tacconi of music, who is here, um, Charlotte Houghton of art history, and myself of English. The second year, the topic was Picasso, Stravinsky, and the Ballet Russe in Ballet Poc, Paris. And it was instructed by Maureen Carr of music, who is here. Uh, Willa Silverman of French and Jewish Studies, and Nancy Locke of Art History. This year, our topic is Philadelphia in the Age of Revolution. Um, all of our seminars so far have been coordinated with the Moments of Change Initiative uh, from the Institute for the Arts and Humanities, and Marika Tacconi, who in her other hat is the director of that institute, would like to say a few words uh, about Moments of Change. Marika. So good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to see all of you here. I recognize a lot of faces from the past. Uh, it's always nice to see that we have a following. Um, first of all, I would like to mention um, a few things, uh, extend a few things. First of all, to Linda Woodbridge uh, for now, you know, but now we have established this wonderful partnership. It's the third year of this linked Weiss Seminar Moments of Change uh, initiative. And uh, I think it's really a win-win for everyone. And uh, it's been a tremendous partnership. And so I do want to thank her personally for making this uh, seminar possible. Um, a few other people I would like to thank, um, obviously, the um, coordinator, uh, leader, uh, in, um, main instructor of this seminar, who is Sean Gowdy, and Linda will be introducing him in a second. Uh, he has done really the, uh, most of the work uh, for the seminar in uh, um, coordinating all the speakers, in uh, being able to you know, really think about the seminar as a whole and put it all together. But I'll leave some of that to Linda to uh, discuss in a second. I also would like to thank the staff of the eLearning Institute within the College of Arts and Architecture. And we have Mike Collins, who is here somewhere in the back. There is Mike, uh, who is going to be helping with all of the technical assistance uh, for this seminar. And so we are very grateful to the eLearning Institute and its staff for once again helping us with all of this. Um, and then, um, obviously, I would like to thank my own staff, uh, Rob Blyle especially, who is the Assistant Director of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities, who has been uh, tremendous in just helping uh, communicate uh, between uh, Sean and the speakers and uh, the technical uh, apparatus and whatnot. I want to say just a few words about the Moments of Change initiative. Uh, which this year is titled Dare to Know, which is actually a quote by Kant, uh, the late 18th century, 1776 to 1801. Uh, as in the past three years, the Moments of Change initiative will run through the entire year, both fall and spring semester. We have over 40 events that are planned right now. And just to kind of whet your appetite, um, Bob, would you mind helping? Uh, I have three copies that I would like to maybe give one to each section of the room so that you are aware of what is coming, uh, the 40 plus events that we have planned at this point. Um, what I will say is that the brochure for the entire Moments of Change initiative will be out on September 11th. Uh, that will also be the official kickoff 
uh, for the Moments of Change initiative. It will be the opening roundtable. And so for now, if you would just uh, spread around this uh, sheet just for your own, own information, I will have the brochures as soon as they are published. We go to press this afternoon, which is why I'm a little bit frantic right now. Um, and they will be out, as I said, very shortly. If you are not on the Institute's uh, email list, um, listserv, I should say, then please, please, please sign up. We have a sign-up sheet right here, and you will therefore automatically receive all of the announcements of the 40-something Moments of Change events throughout the year and all the other things that uh, we do at the Institute. We have about 70 events a year that we, um, that we sponsor. Um, okay, so I believe I have covered pretty much everything. So again, I want to thank you for coming and um, dare to know, dare to learn. Uh, I urge you to have a wonderful uh, semester through the WISE seminar and a wonderful academic year through all of the Moments of Change events. Thank you. And now I'll pass the mic uh, back to Linda Woodbridge. Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce my colleague, Sean Gowdy. Sean is not only the very first professor of the masculine gender ever to teach in the Weiss Seminar Series, <laughs> a tremendous burden on his shoulders. He will also be teaching on his own. We do not have team teachers this year. It's Sean himself, assisted by a legion of distinguished guest lecturers. Sean is Associate Professor of English and a member of the Advisory Board for the Center for American Literary Studies here at Penn State. He has his PhD from the University of California at Berkeley, but despite the fact that I have mine from UCLA, we're still friends. <laughs> Before coming to Penn State, he taught at Vanderbilt University. His book, Creole America, The West Indies and the Formation of Literature and Culture in the New Republic, University of Pennsylvania Press, 2006, was awarded the 2007 Modern Language Association Prize for a first book. This is a really big deal. Sean's research and teaching seek to devise new paradigms for understanding American literature and culture across the centuries, challenging national estimations of the field in favor of hemispheric and transnational approaches with particular emphasis on North American and Caribbean relations, historic, political, economic, and cultural. Right now, he's working on a book examining the ways in which the Caribbean region becomes a primary locus for US empire building in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He will be your guide for the whole semester. Please welcome Sean Gowdy. Thanks so much, Linda, and I'm going to be using this fancy dancy microphone, so I feel like I should start by breaking out in song. <laughs> but if I did that, I fear you might leave and I want you to stay. Um, so just imagine me singing Yankee Doodle Dandy or something all, all the while. Um, my thanks to the Weiss family, uh, the extraordinary generosity in support um, of this fantastic series. I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it in this third incarnation. Uh, my thank to, thanks to Linda Woodbridge uh, for having the confidence in me to go it alone uh, for the semester, uh, to Mark Ticconi in the IAH, and, and Rob uh, Blyle for their tremendous support. I mean, Mar was way too generous at the beginning suggesting that I had done this on my own, hardly the case. Uh, they're fantastic support, uh, incredibly capable people, both of them, and uh, that we are having the series is a, a testament to the support that they've given me uh, as I've organized this this past summer. Uh, thanks as well to Dustin Kennedy, who's to my left. Dustin, you want to wave? You'll see Dustin around throughout the semester. He's going to be my assistant uh, in the course this semester. He's an advanced graduate student in the English department. And appropriately, given the topic of the course, he's uh, researching and writing a dissertation on 19th century uh, treatments, literary treatments of the American Revolution. Um, so I'm very grateful to him and for his support. Uh, I have various colleagues who've come, including Carlo, who just came in the back. Welcome. And uh, I'm grateful for you being here. This first week is usually a very tough week to show it up at anything but your class, <laughs> your own class, for a variety of reasons. So that you're here, I'm grateful. Uh, 
I wanted to start, I draw your attention if you wouldn't, I guess I have this little buzzer where I can actually, where's the, uh, the radar light, is that it? There we go. When I saw the advertisement come out for the series that Rob Blau put together, I admit I wasn't shocked to see that he put the Liberty Bell on there. <laughs> uh, perhaps there's no iconic figure that's more um, connected to revolutionary Philadelphia than what the Liberty Bell, right? So, Refinding the Founding, Reconsidering Philadelphia in the Age of Revolution will be the title of my talk. And for the first section of the talk, I want to title it Foundings and Foundries of All Things, The Liberty Bell and Elizabeth Furnace in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So we'll be reaching out beyond Philadelphia to the wider Pennsylvania region, not just in today's talk, but across the talks this semester. And there, there she doesn't blow, <laughs> and hasn't since the mid-19th century. Um, although that just gave away part of my question, uh, which is, how and when did the Liberty Bell crack? How and when did the Liberty Bell crack? Any thoughts? Be daring, dare to know. <laughs> Forget what Khan has to say about that. <laughs> Any thoughts? Correct. George Washington's birthday. I expected that somebody might say, somebody less astute and less well-trained in, in this area, uh, would, would maybe say that it, it, uh, it happened when, when the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence took place, which was actually on July 8th, not July 4th. Um, the story is told, what, that the, the bell ringer, at the State House, and I'm indebted to my instructor telling this last week, so I incorporated it in the talk, Dustin Kennedy. Um, the bell ringer in the State House was so anxious about Congress declaring independence um, that he stood there for days and finally was beginning to despair when his grandson, who was eavesdropping outside the State House, heard that they had declared, rushed to tell him, ring, grandfather, ring, and he rang so hard that he cracked it. Uh, where do we get that? myth from. Uh, that myth comes from George Lepard, who is a Philadelphia novelist, uh, a, a novelist of gothic romances, weird and wacky, but in interesting ways. Um, his story, The Fourth of July, 1776, which was published in 1847, uh, is, is part of a larger collection called Washington and His Generals, or Legends of the Revolution. Um, and in that way, I think it suggest to us the importance, right, of literature and culture in national myth-making. Um, the bill did, as the audience members say, finally toll its last, uh, it, it ring for the last, rung for the last time on Washington's birthday in 1846 when it fell deaf and dumb. Um, and so Lepard's collection comes out the following year. And in such a way, he thrust the Liberty Bell into national myth. Um, inscribed on the bell is proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. And that's a passage from uh, Leviticus. The bell was first was built, uh, was ordered in 1751, uh, right? It was, it was to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Charter of Privileges, which is sort of the original constitution for Pennsylvania granted to William Penn. And uh, upon arrival, the colonists realized that it was defective. It's symbolic again, I think. Uh, and so it had to be recast in, by a foundry in uh, Pennsylvania, Stowen Pass. I've gone too far ahead there. and. They reinforced it with some copper, made it stronger, um, and it wasn't again until 18, the 1840s when it, when it cracked for the final time. Um, but it wasn't always called the Liberty Bill. It was called the State House Bill until the 1830s when tellingly uh, abolitionist societies, right, in New York, um, in Boston and elsewhere, seized on the scripture, that is, the scriptural passage inscribed on the bill, and re-anointed it and 
drew upon it for its figural power uh, in their anti-slavery agitation um, and reanointed it the Liberty Bell. So now to the foundry part. Uh, Millersville University, the Atlantic World Research Project, Elizabeth Burns, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. This past March, uh, I came across more fascinating accounts of Philadelphia Metalworks. Uh, of all places, while I was attending a conference in Bermuda, tough job, someone had to do it, so I volunteered to go down and march to Bermuda. You know, had to pull myself away from that lovely weather we had last March here. Um, there I encountered Clarence Maxwell, who is a historian and a Bermuda native, from, a historian at Millersville University, which is, as many of you know, in Lancaster County in Pennsylvania. Um, and he was giving this brilliant talk in a panel that I sat in on merchants, the merchant slave population in Bermuda's involvement in 18th century smuggling between the North American colonists and then New Nation uh, and the West Indies, particularly the French West Indies. And it's through him that I became aware of this fascinating uh, interdisciplinary project that he's a part of. At their website, you learn about the genesis of the project and its history to this point. And basically, the archaeologists at Millersville University got together and decided they wanted to dig at Elizabeth Furnace, this metalworks foundry. And they thought it was going to be a very local project, just to find out something more from whatever they excavated about the history of Lancaster County. As they began to dig, not only in the ground, but in the archives, they realized they had something quite different on their hands. Uh, the Stedman family that owned, this is a different Stedman, Dustin, than the one you're working on. Uh, the Stedman family that owned the foundry turned out to have been, two of them, very powerful, wealthy merchants who lived in Philadelphia on the waterfront. As they researched further in the archives, they realized, one, this foundry was way too big in size and scope to have ever been just a local producer of metalworks for Lancaster County. Two, the documents were telling them that the size and scope of this um, foundry was, it was as big as it was for a particular reason. Um, and here I'll direct your attention to an advertisement in the Pennsylvania Gazette in March 23rd, 1769, that the foundry placed. And you note that they are advertising iron castings of all dimensions, soap boilers, pans, pots, etc., great bars, and castings for sugar works in the West Indies. And all are carefully done, etc., etc. Um, so what this advertisement showed us is that the reason why the foundry at Elizabeth Furnace was so large, why it was producing so many more metalworks than it otherwise might, why it was not just a local operation, why it was not just a regional operation, why, in fact, it was a hemispheric in proto-industrial operation taking place is that they were selling all the excess product and designing products specifically for West Indian plantations. Now, why don't we know about this? Why isn't this obvious? Something happened in the 1750s. Navigation acts were passed by the British. The Sugar Act, for example, put high taxes on French West Indian sugar and made the colonists buy molasses and sugar from the British West Indies exclusively or else pay extraordinarily high taxes. Thus began what? The kind of smuggling operations that would lead in some sense to the revolution to a considerable extent. These attempts by merchants, sailors, etc., their outfit to evade the British non-importation laws, tariffs, taxes, etc., like sugar. This is all part of that. So if you go looking for the records, of all the products that were sent to the West Indies by Elizabeth Furnace, you won't find them. At least, they won't be readily available. You have to, as this team has done, go to letter books that are written between family members, some living in the West Indies, in Bermuda, some living in Philadelphia, um, newspaper advertisements. There are other sources that you have to go to or begin to track down um, the reason why it is that this was such an expansive operation. All right. so. 
the question, and here you see, this is part the what they're doing right now in this stage of the project, I should say, is there's Clarence on the left, Maxwell, and Tim Trussell, who's the archeologist in charge at Millersville, they're standing in a smuggler's cave in Southampton, Bermuda. And they've been excavating there, but they've also been excavating, I guess I don't have to keep going up and pointing at the text since I have a thing. Um, they're, ex they're looking at owns, homes uh, that were owned by ships, captains, and merchants with extensive ties to Philadelphia. Have you ever been to Bermuda? I mean, I've never seen anything like it. I, I've been to other places in the West Indies, but only until March, which isn't really technically, Bermuda's not technically the West Indies, and they don't like to be called West Indian. And some of that has to do with the fact that you'll see when you go there that there, it wasn't a plantation slave economy, largely. It was a mercantile slave economy. This was where the British Navy had a major fortress. This is where smuggling operations went through. Um, and slaves worked in the merchant trades. I'm going to talk about a merchant slave in a moment, Elato Aquiano, but hold on that. Um, so here you see them standing in a smuggler's fortress. To date, they haven't yet been able to find any metalwork in the ground that has the Elizabeth Furnace imprint on it, but they're looking, and they're still looking for that. Okay. So how does the Millersville University Elizabeth Furnace project overlap with the concerns of my own research, and how um, I would like to refine Philadelphia and the founding today? And I should note at the outset that what I'm going to talk about today is, and what I'm going to demonstrate is just one way of many, hopefully, that you'll hear about this matter, one pathway for refinding the founding, um, one literalized, as we've just seen, by Millersville University's archaeological project to find evidence of metalworks forged in Elizabeth Furnace in Bermuda. At the end of my talk today, I'll gesture to other ways in which the West, not the West Indies, other Weiss lecturers uh, will try and refine the founding in their own talks. So, how is it connected to my research? Well, this is my book that. Uh, Linda kindly talked about at the beginning. And in Creole America, I'm trying to show the ways in which literary culture in this period, in the late 18th, early 19th century in the United States, late colonial North American colonies in the early United States, was formed not only by expansionist designs on the continent, but also by a push for commercial empire in the West Indian trades. The, a key figure, a generative figure of the study is Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was born where? In the West Indies, right? He worked there till age, from age 13 till 18, 17, 18, as the chief at age 13. Can you imagine that? You've got a lot to live up to, Nora. My daughter's five years old in the front, um, and I'm expecting a lot. So uh, he worked as the chief merchant clerk for a New York mercantile outfit, the Krugers. He was in charge of one of the biggest firms in the West Indies from age 13 to age 18. So you, by the time he came to found the United States Bank, he of all the founding fathers knew something about doing that kind of thing. He was uniquely capable of doing that. Um, and yet Hamilton, as Secretary of the Treasury, right, under Washington, who designed and set the course for the United States as a kind of empire for commerce to compete with European empires in the West Indian trade in that theater in the hemisphere, came to embody in his very person, right, um, anxieties that Americans felt about the potentially disastrous consequences on the nation and national character of extensive commercial and cultural relations between the slave colonies of the West Indies and the putatively, I put that in quote, free and democratic states of the New Republic. So across the chapters of Creole America, I examine poetry and plays and fiction and essays and political drafts and uh, all kinds of different documents and texts to show how distinctions between the US, West, US and West Indian bodies, um, culture and commodities and so on blend and blur. But likewise, as we've just seen, the Millersville Archaeology Project relative to Elizabeth Furnace Foundry is reconsidering the, found, re, the finding and boundaries of the United States um, by taking seriously intricate networks, uh, legal and illegal, of commercial and cultural exchanges between Philadelphia and the West Indies during the last, last half of the 18th century, prior to, during, and following the Revolutionary War. Put differently, 
The founding of the first democratic republic in the Western Hemisphere and Philadelphia's and Philadelphians' crucial role in that founding cannot be thought of as somehow apart from, but is intricately bound up in the slave colonies of the West Indies. To evoke an archaeological metaphor, why is that story and that history been so difficult to excavate? Well, obviously, I've just gestured on literally for Elizabeth Furness and the archaeological team. It's hard to find the records. Um, nobody wants to talk about their illegal smuggling operations in print. <laughs> but I think there's a different reason why at the founding and scholars have been reticent about talking about the intimate connections between the West Indies and Philadelphia and the New Republic. Um, for the Founding Fathers were well aware and in many cases actively provided for North America's role in sustaining the slave colonies of the West Indies, even as many of them sought to downplay, elide, mystify, abstract, or otherwise negate such a relationship. Why? Because it was inconsistent in many ways with the founding principles of the Republic, not least of all, liberty. Benjamin Franklin, who we're going to talk about for a moment here. There's Ben, uh, the Joseph Duplessis, 1778, um, famous portrait of him. Um, intimately bound up in the national mythology with the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia's founding is the figure of Benjamin Franklin, about whom my colleague Carla Mulford, who is, I should say at the outset, um, far more expert on Benjamin Franklin than I would ever hope to be. Um, she's published widely on him, and she'll be talking about Franklin and educational liberalism. Uh, in a few weeks. Uh, but Franklin is intimately connected to the Liberty Bell, for example. This is, the, what, the Franklin half dollar that was minted in 1948, and you have the Liberty Bell and Franklin side by side. When you go to the National Park Service Independent National Historical Park website, uh, and it discusses the Liberty Bell Center there, um, there is this quote, the old cracked bell still proclaims liberty in Independence Hall echoes the words, we the people explore Franklin's Philadelphia and learn more about the past and America's continuing struggle to fulfill the founder's declaration that all men are created equal. But the question still, right? What does Franklin have to do with the West Indies? I had when I told colleagues and friends that the first chapter of my book was going to talk about Franklin, that was a question came over. What, what the, put in your substitute your word, does Franklin have to do with the West Indies? So I want to talk a little bit about the autobiography, uh, this famous foundational text, right, of becoming American. Here on the left is the title page of the first edition for the British version, and here on the right, 1791, is the French um, title page for the autobiography wasn't titled as such, right? Inventor, institution builder, city planner, political strategist, and perhaps most significantly, a model national biographer, Benjamin Franklin was thoroughly involved in charting the course of Philadelphia, the nation state, and the national citizen. Nonetheless, since the publication of Herman Melville's mid-19th century parody of Franklin and Israel Potter and D.H. Lawrence's 1920s critical account of Franklin as a con man, writers and scholars have attempted to unravel the seemingly seamless democratic message of Franklin's foundational autobiography. Still, they've yet to identify one of the text's foremost rhetorical strategies, Franklin's attempt to figure in the West Indies by way of figuring them out of his text, a strategy consistent with the illusions regarding slavery in the West Indian trades in the Declaration of Independence, something my class talked about on Tuesday. Um, from the moment the young printer establishes himself in Philadelphia and simultaneously avoids having to fulfill an apprenticeship to a West Indian merchant he had agreed to serve, the West Indies become a contaminated site, a place to which business failures and Franklin's enemies are banished, a place against which he and the rising U.S. nation are measured. 
Consistent with such disfigurations, Franklin's autobiography mutes the voice of West Indian slaves and freedmen like Alano Equiano, whose slave narrative recounts three fascinating business trips from the West Indies to Franklin's Philadelphia during the peak of Franklin's entrepreneurial and diplomatic brilliance. By treating these little examined moments in Franklin's narrative, I demonstrate how many Philadelphia writers such as Franklin commodify not only the colonized or formerly colonized of the West Indies, but also fascinatingly enough, the West Indian colonial establishment to which Philadelphia's economy is wedded. Readers of Franklin's autobiography, and many of you in the room will soon be reading the autobiography uh, in my class, and others of you who haven't read it for a while or, or maybe haven't read it at all, but sort of know it from national mythology, I, I encourage you to go back and look and, after the talk and, and think about what I have to say, see if it has any merit. Uh, Maybe surprised by the claim that the West Indies emerge as an important figural presence in the text, right? Indeed, Franklin mentions the West Indies less than a dozen times in the entire narrative. Yet I want to maintain that the space that the West Indies occupy in the text is inversely proportional to their ability to generate meaning in it. What do I mean? Well, Franklin's unflattering West Indian illusions to the West Indies, to people and things West Indian, or more precisely, to people and things from Philadelphia, gone West Indian, represent a discursive maneuvering always already underpinning the text rhetoric. Regarding Franklin's text specifically, his West Indian allusions respond to the emerging republic's ongoing exploitative, if not precisely colonial, relationship to the plantation economies of the West Indies. Like the Democratic Republic's tautological dependence on Southern slavery, its codependency on West Indian plantation economies is at odds with the nation's founding values and civilizing missions, a contradiction that Franklin discreetly registers in the autobiography. And I would say, I can't do that for purposes of this talk, but I examine a lot of his other writings, and less discreetly, I would say, in some of his other work. Franklin's West Indian represent representations complicate not only the text's ostensibly democratic message, but also its formal properties by generating a series of West Indian representations that prove anxious and disruptive. Franklin's allusions to the West Indies in the autobiography are most notable for the consistently debasing tone. The West Indies become at once a metaphor and a metonym or site for an anti-North America, the place to which the continent's undesirables remove and are removed. Such debasement characterizes Franklin's disfiguration of perhaps his foremost foe in the autobiography, the printer Samuel Keimer. A chief rival in the Philadelphia printing scene, Keimer ultimately proves incompetent and ill at ease in polite Philadelphia society. In one of the autobiography's most vicious attacks, Franklin ridicules Keimer's failure to maintain a kosher Jewish lifestyle. Although Keimer wears his beard at full length, he proves the fool when Franklin tempts him with dressed meats during Lent. Writes Franklin, quote, he was usually a great glutton, and though I went on pleasantly, poor Keimer suffered grievously, tired of the project, longed for the flesh pots of Egypt, and ordered a roast pig, eating it in its entirety, quote. Thus, Keimer's gluttony foreordains his later removal, not to Egypt, but to a rhetorically charged West Indies. This is not at all to suggest that the basing conditions are non-existent, and the plantation economies of the West Indies, far from it. Instead, I am concerned with the ways in which Franklin's rhetoric seeks to binarize the relationship between the emerging US nation state for which Philadelphia becomes the exemplar in Franklin's autobiography in the always already debased and negated West Indies to the extent that the West Indies and not the US South, tellingly, becomes the site of all that is other to the nation, its foundational democratic and Republican values and its exceptional citizenry. Quote, I went on swimmingly in the printing business, Franklin gloats, whereas Keimer's credit and business declined daily. And he was at last forced to sell his printing house to satisfy his creditors. He went to Barbados and there lived some years in very poor circumstances, unquote. Ever the self-promoter, Franklin strategically produces an unrelentingly negative account of Keimer, capped off by his unceremonious epitaph about Keimer's West Indian demise. Nowhere does he mention Keimer's more positive achievements. Keimer was one of the first Philadelphians to found a school for slaves in 1722. He established the first West Indian newspaper in 1731, 
the Barbados Gazette. And he published a widely circulated first collection of West Indian Creole writings in verse entitled Caribbeana in 1741. Such details might have provided a fuller, more balanced account, not only of Keimer, but of the many circumatlantic personalities that operate within and beyond the margins of much late colonial and early US American literature and culture. Instead, Franklin relocates Keimer according to the cunning artifices of the text beyond its domains to the West Indies. A fatal destination marked by nothingness where Keimer lives out his life in poverty, decline, and decay. Several other figures also endure the Keimer treatment, as I'm calling it, whereby Franklin anxiously disciplines according to a pattern of debasement and negation in the West Indies, the West Indian trades and the attendant flow of peoples and commodities to the West Indies from Philadelphia. In the process, Franklin insulates himself from possible contagion by would-be rivals and competitors. Indeed, to read Franklin's autobiography, it would seem that only the most unfit to survive in the ascending Democratic Republic descend to the dark and distant West Indies, never to be heard from again. Keimer's dandified apprentice, David Harry, is one such example. In his tendency towards pride, he is said to, quote, dress like a gentleman, live expensively, take much diversion and pleasure abroad, run into debt and neglect his business, unquote. Harry anticipates, according to Franklin's debasing characterization of him, his ultimate relocation to the West Indies by looking and acting like the 18th century stereotype of a West Indian merchant or absentee planner, otherwise termed a nabob. And here, you see a portrait by John Singleton Copley of Nicholas Boy a rather famous uh, painting of Boylston. Boylston Street in Boston, Copley Square. Uh, Boylston was one of the most powerful and prominent, before the revolution, uh, merchants in Boston, indeed in all of the colonies, uh, trading to the West Indies and to the Orient, and tea and coffee in particular, but other trades as well. Um, I imagine when Franklin's talking about dandified, extravagant Harry, uh, striking such a pose, somebody like this, not that he is Boylston, but he's pretending to be like Boylston. Compare, if you will, the portrait, Duplessis portrait of a more staid Franklin to this figure, and you'll see the striking distinction, right? Boylston's, he's got a, what, a uh, negligee cap. If he were out in the street, he'd be wearing a wig, but he's not. He's at home. He's a man of wealth at the moment, a man of what, leisure, which doesn't mean he's not thinking about his business enterprise. How do you know that? He's, he got his out here, which isn't showing up very well. He's got his three-mast schooner running around the world. He's got his head, or not his head, his hand on some very thick books. Those are ledger books. They're letting you know what? I'm an important guy. I have a lot of business to attend to. That being said, I can kind of stay at home because I'm also quite wealthy. How do, I know, how do you know this? I'm wearing this blue-green morning gown, otherwise known as a, a banyan, right? A Hindu, Hindu kind of word. And um, I have lots of silk. Um, and uh, I have linen and ruffles, uh, almost the same kind of linen ruffles that women would wear. Um, and he's sitting in a Chippendale chair, which is recently a design style that had been imported from England. So um, that's when I, when I read Franklin describe Harry, I think of this kind of figure. Like Harry, like, like Keimer, Harry fails in, in the Philadelphia printing business and finding nothing due, followed Keimer to Barbados, we're told. Franklin relates as well the fate of John Collins, a childhood friend who propels Franklin to study logic more deeply by criticizing his lack of eloquence. On their maiden voyage to Philadelphia from Boston, as teenagers, Collins proves an unworthy companion to Franklin, literally and figuratively, on the move. We are told Collins drinks too much and is fractious, and Franklin eventually throws him overboard when he refuses to help row them to safety in a storm. He leaves Franklin upon their arrival in Philadelphia promising to remit to Franklin a sizable debt, only to abscond to the West Indies, with a, quote, West Indian captain who had a commission to procure a tutor for the sons of gentlemen at Barbados, unquote, never to be heard from again. Finally, Franklin identifies his future wife, Deborah Reed's first husband, one of the couple references to Deborah Reed in the entire text, uh, John Rogers, as a, quote, worthless fellow who got into debt and ran away to the West Indies and died there, unquote, conveniently leaving 
read eligible to partner the infinitely more desirable Franklin. Franklin's catalog of debased rivals who removed to the West Indies thereby cast the West Indies in a negative light. The region emerges as the site to which disreputable, unsuccessful, unworthy former sons of Philadelphia retreat, thereby clearing the textual space, right, necessary for Franklin's expansive North American personality to unfold, a life more worthy of imitation. After all, the autobiography is addressed to a son, dear son, and to young men. Um, than the lives of Franklin's band of West Indian castaways. Intriguingly, and this is really the passage in the text that sort of got me thinking about the larger issue in it, Franklin seems narrowly to have avoided sharing their fate. Early on in the narrative, he relates that as a young man returning from a period abroad in England, he agreed to become the protege of Thomas Denham, a Philadelphia merchant. Denham now told me he was about to return to Philadelphia. He's in London at this stage as a young man. And should carry over, Franklin, I mean, and should carry over a great quantity of goods in order to open a store there. He proposed to take me over as his clerk, to keep his books in which he would instruct me. He added that as soon as I, and I think I have more of the passage and I'm going to read and you can read it on the screen. He added that as soon as I should be acquainted with mercantile business, he would promote me by sending me with a cargo of flour and bread to the West Indies and procure me commissions from others, which would be profitable, and if I managed well, would establish me handsomely. The thing pleased me, for I was grown tired of London. Therefore, I immediately agreed. Soon after their return to Philadelphia, however, Denham falls fatally ill, and Franklin turns to printing, with money left to him in the will, as a vocation in Philadelphia. So here are the questions I have. How might the identity formation their Franklin sketches in the autobiography, have been altered had fate not saved him from a career as a West Indian merchant clerk. What did it mean to have one's identity formed in the crucible of the volatile and frequently violent West Indian trades? Further, what does Franklin's aborted plan to ship out to the West Indies suggest about Philadelphia's and the inchoate nations shadowy involvement in the colonization of the West Indies. Did they avoid being affiliated with or corrupted by the West Indian trade routes that form a kind of anti-exodus in Franklin's text, tending away from the promised land of Philadelphia, according to Franklin's unidirectional cartography? Alada Aquiano's now widely read slave narrative provides a series of richly illuminating answers to some of these questions. And my students will be reading Equiano's narrative alongside Franklin's autobiography, so this is a prep for them in some sense. And you, the larger public. Published contemporaneous to Franklin's late stage writing and revising of the autobiography, the interesting narrative of 1789 has received much well-deserved scholarly attention in recent years. Hardly any critical attention has been paid, however, to Equiano's Philadelphia visits, kind of the inverse, interestingly, of the lack of attention to Franklin's West Indian account in the autobiography. A tale within a larger circumatlantic narrative of captivity, bondage, and freedom, Equiano's Philadelphia story can be read productively alongside Franklin's foundational account of a young man's entry into Philadelphia society in a subsequent refashioning of an exemplary American identity there. And I thought these portraits were quite stunning uh, for the similarity in pose and dress. Um, so I put them together for you, suggestive reasons. As I attempt such a task, I'm mindful that Equiano's Philadelphia account and Franklin's autobiography emanate from two widely different locations, not only in terms of American literary history, but also in relation to the two authors' respective places in the 18th century circumatlantic world. Whereas Franklin enjoys a life of privilege as a Philadelphia printer, entrepreneur, and statesman, Equiano attempts to liberate himself from slavery by pursuing the life of a West Indian merchant clerk that Franklin ultimately avoided. Accordingly, Equiano's narrative proves an especially apt vehicle for challenging the representation of the Philadelphia West Indian relationship in Franklin's foundational text. 
Aquiano's Philadelphia story begins as he's being sold in Montserrat to Robert King, a Philadelphia merchant working the West Indian trades. Before reading Aquiano's account of the sale, let me briefly gesture to its larger significance. First, if Franklin's anxious narrative suggests that only failing, irredeemable Philadelphians depart for the West Indies, Robert King's presence there points to a crucially different story, one centered on Philadelphia's reliance on the West Indies for its very economic survival. Second, Equiano's ultimate emergence from the West Indies and entry into Philadelphia in search of freedom suggests a radically different set of coordinates by which to chart the formation of foundational American stories and characters, not Philadelphia via Boston, but Philadelphia via Africa, England, and the West Indies. Moreover, Equiano's revelation about the Pennsylvania Quaker King's purchase of him points to the manifold ways in which Philadelphia's participation pre and post revolution in the Atlantic slave economy extended well beyond the North Atlantic, particularly into the West Indian plantation economies to which Franklin disparagingly alludes. Equiano provides the following protracted account of his impressions upon learning he is to be sold to King by Captain Duran, his merchant's agent. And I, again, like the portraits, this passage doubles in interesting ways with the would-be uh, entry of Franklin into the West Indian trades as a merchant clerk upon the offer by Denham that we just saw. With trembling steps and a fluttering heart, he came to the captain, and I found him with one Mr. Robert King, a Quaker, and the first merchant in the place. The captain then told me my former master had sent me there to be sold, but that he had desired him to get me the best master he could as he told me I was a very deserving boy, which Captain Durant said he found to be true. And if he were to stay in the West Indies, he would be glad to keep me himself. But he could not venture to take me to London, for he was very sure that when I came there, I would leave him. My new master, Mr. King, then made a reply and said the reason he had bought me was on account of my good character. And as he had not the least doubt of my good behavior, I should be very off, well off with him. He also told me he did not live in the West Indies, but at Philadelphia, where he was going. And as I understood something of the rules of arithmetic, when we got there, he would put me to school and fit me for a clerk. Especially striking about Equiano's testimony is how uncannily it resembles Franklin's own narrative about his emerging prospects as a West Indian merchant clerk under Thomas Denham. Like Franklin, Equiano does not become a merchant clerk, at least not initially. Instead, Equiano records how King repeatedly reneges on his promise to uplift him in order to exploit Equiano's skilled slave status indefinitely. Gauging King's duplicity, according to Franklin's portrayal of Philadelphians gone West Indian, we might conclude that like Heimer, Collins, and Rogers before him, King is a Philadelphia misfit, a social prior unworthy of admittance into citizenship status in the New Republic. On the contrary, King was a highly respected Philadelphia merchant and his behavior and participation in the West Indian trades as depicted by Equiano was hardly unusual. On the contrary, King was a, I'm sorry, I just said that, writes Equiano, quote, King dealt in all manner of merchandise and kept from one to six clerks. He loaded many vessels in a year, particularly to Philadelphia, where he was born, he was connected with a great mercantile house in that city, unquote. As historians such as Kathy Matson and Peggy Liss and Richard Sheridan, Philip Curtin, Philip Morgan, and Jack Green, none of whom are going to be part of this semester, uh, have recently shown, North American affiliations with the West Indian colonies were varied and elaborate. West Indians owned estates in Philadelphia, and prominent Philadelphians owned and operated major trading houses throughout the West Indies. Cultural connections are strong, too. As I'll discuss in my second lecture on November 19th, West Indian theatrical troops like the Hallams of Jamaica were major players on the Philadelphia stage. The exchange of commerce and culture between Philadelphia and the West Indies in the late 18th century was far more substantial, dynamic, and fluid than Franklin's text indicates. Accordingly, Equiano's account exposes the partial nature of Franklin's depiction of his and Philadelphia's West Indian affairs. Philadelphia's role in Equiano's e evolution from slave to nominally free status proves crucial. Equiano eventually reaches Philadelphia on three different voyages, two of them sponsored by King. A cursory reading of Equiano's account would seem to vindicate Franklin's binary opposition between civilized Philadelphia and the uncivilized West Indies. Equiano variously refers to Philadelphia as, quote, the elegant town, 
the charming town where he finds everything plentiful and cheap, this agreeable spot, this fruitful land, and on his final voyage there, this favorite old town, unquote. There he is able, he reports, to sell profitably wares that his captain awards him for his constant good character, a puncheon of rum, a hogshead of sugar, in pursuit of money enough to purchase my freedom, unquote. Indeed, monies that Equiano earns from his bartering in Philadelphia go a long way toward making such a goal possible. Closer analysis of Equiano's Philadelphia story, however, reveals a carefully structured, ingeniously cataloged set of contradictions that belie Equiano's more glowing account of what was, by the time Equiano's narrative was published, the New Republic's capital city. Based on the above-mentioned reports, one would expect Equiano, upon receiving his manumission papers, to relocate to Philadelphia in order to live out the duration of his life in prosperity and unqualified freedom. Yet Equiano speaks about Philadelphia with a double voice that critics have identified as characteristic of his textual persona. In this instance, the effect of his double-voiceness is to ironize the celebratory tone of much of his Philadelphia story by exposing the contradictory condition of a Philadelphia at once free and unfree, hospitable and inhospitable, civilized and uncivilized. If in Philadelphia, Equiano avails himself of the opportunity, as he says, to sell high and buy cheaply, he does so only with the Quakers. Equiano states, they, the Quakers, always appeared to be a very honest and discreet sort of people and never attempted to impose on me. I therefore liked them and never after chose to deal with them in preference to any others, unquote, thereby implying that Philadelphia's non-Quakers were less honest and discreet towards him than he would have liked. Also, if in his 1785 favorite old town visit, which he takes several years after returning as a freedman to London, Equiano is encouraged to see some of Philadelphia's citizens, quote, easing the burdens of my oppressed Africans, unquote. He is nonetheless dismayed that such efforts seem specific to the Quakers alone. Go ye and do likewise, Equiano citing scripture shouts at the reader. Finally, Equiano submits Philadelphia to a stinging critique that reveals why homelessness rather than home, uh, rather than Philadelphia would remain Equiano's home, a liminal site from which he is not quite free. Black men would submit the various Atlantic sites he had encountered to scrutiny without ever being at home in any one of them. He tells the story of witnessing men he calls infernal invaders of human rights, kidnapping and re-enslaving a freed black man from a vessel he serves off the coast of Montserrat. As he proceeds, Equiano makes it clear that blacks lack the same sort of human, let alone constitutional, protections, not only in, quote, Jamaica and the other islands in the West Indies, unquote, but also in Franklin's would-be land of liberty. I have heard of similar practices even in Philadelphia, Equiano protests, and were it not for the benevolence of the Quakers in that city, many of the sable race who now breathe the air of liberty would, I believe, be groaning under some planter's chains, unquote. Such a statement counters Franklin's notion that all of Philadelphia's undesirables had shipped out to the West Indies. Cru crucially, Equiano inserts this cautionary account conjoining the injustices of Philadelphia with the outrageous violence perpetrated in the West Indies in strategic fashion it proceeds and thereby informs the reader's impressions of Equiano's seemingly favorable recollections of his three Philadelphia visits. Equiano's Philadelphia story, story thus suggests that the West Indies should not be thought of as unimportant to the formation of Philadelphia's and the nascent republic's economy, culture, and character as Franklin's discourse of negation in the autobiography might tempt us to believe. Something of an absentee landlord himself Franklin had several business interests in the West Indies. Indeed, he sent his nephew, Benjamin Maycomb, to, in his imperial words, win, quote, the printing business of all the islands, there being no other printer, unquote. While Maycomb quickly fell into debt and his mission failed, eventually Franklin succeeded in establishing printing presses throughout the Leeward Islands. Thus, we must consider the West Indies as intertwined with, in a formative presence in Philadelphia's, in the New Republic's national character and literary history an interesting narrative the scholars have heretofore largely negated. Put differently, the conflicted feelings towards Philadelphia that Equiano so eloquently expresses in his very interesting narrative brilliantly succeed in countering Franklin's autobiography's West Indian negation. At the same time, they lay bare the deep and disturbing affiliations between the slave colonies of the West Indies 
the embryonic states of the not-quite-free republic. Okay, so that's my account. And now what I'm going to do is go over the schedule for this semester and touch on a little bit the various presenters so that you'll have a sense of the rich presentations that we'll have for the balance of the semester. All of them are going to try and attempt to respond to two questions that I've asked them, of them. What social and cultural transformation unfolded during the age of revolution in this major North American city? And how might such changes be linked to developments in the wider Atlantic world that shaped them and to which they responded? So those are the two broader questions that I've asked them to structure their presentations around. This, by the way, is a Quaker petition that I forgot to go to during the talk when Franklin talked about wanting to only deal with Quakers. And, and interesting, the first print, uh, first petition against slavery was authored in Germantown, Pennsylvania in 1688 by the Quakers. Uh, next week, Michael Zuckerman will give a talk, Charlotte Temple, The Tearjerkers, Harvard New of Revolutions. He's professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of, as you can see, Almost Chosen People. It's, it's, an, it's a quirky book, uh, like Michael. Um, uh, it's provocative, irritating in some ways, um, but always informative and instructive. I don't know a more generous scholar in the field. Um, a story to tell you about Michael Zuckerman is when I gave a talk on Alexander Hamilton from the first book, two days later I got this six-page, single-space type response critiquing it. And so I, in my acknowledgments, I, 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 Jesus, I gotta, it, was, it was very helpful. And so I had to thank him and for his, you know, treating me in this way. And he said, well, I, I do that with everybody. So I felt less privileged uh, once he told me that. But it was too late to pull that out of the, the acknowledgement out of the book. Um, but it, Almost Chosen People is a really interesting book that talks about foundational American stories and moments, but from the point of view of those who were almost chosen people, not those that we know of, about in American history, scoundrels, racists, rebels. Um, and so it's, he, and it's always instructive. He's going to be talking, he's a historian, but interestingly enough, he's going to be talking about the first American bestseller, literary bestseller, novel, Charlotte Temple by Susanna Rosen. Um, and he's interested, basically Rosen was born in Britain, came to live on the eve before the revolution in various parts of the colonies in North America. Father being a loyalist, thought it was a good idea to get out of America in the Revolutionary War, but then came back and lived in Philadelphia. Um, Charlotte Temple, the title character, is seduced um, and ultimately dies in poverty. Um, but what he's interested in is, he's, one, he's interested in why was this such a, a great bestseller in Philadelphia, but not in Britain, where it was originally published. And he writes to me, Charlotte is anything from the stock narrative of a tear-jerk sentimentality that seems. Everything is odd. The seducer is not at all a figure from central casting. Seduction itself is hard to figure. He does this in emails, by the way. He just, he just tells you things. The villains are the conventional embodiments of morality. Feelings are fated to betrayal, yet Rosen affirms feelings anyway. I mean to explore these oddities in the light they cast and the dilemmas that Americans confronted as they entered a new and schizophrenic era of capitalism in the sentimental family. So that's what he's going to be talking about to you. Uh, my colleague, Carla Mulford, will give a talk on September 10th, Benjamin Franklin and Educational Liberalism. She just recently published the Cambridge Companion to Benjamin Franklin, has published many outstanding essays on all a rich variety of topics in relation to Franklin's work and book on Franklin. Um, and in terms of talking about educational liberalism, she may be or may not be talking about Franklin's liberal project in relationship to African-Americans, Native Americans, women, um, one or more of the others. Um, but we'll look forward to that talk by Carla. September 17th, another colleague in the history department in this case, um, Bill Pencax is going to be giving a lecture entitled Religion in a Revolutionary Age, Pennsylvania and Transatlantic Turmoil. Um, you see his book, uh, Jews and Gentiles in Early America, on the right side. He's published a lot of other books, including Pennsylvania History of the Commonwealth. Um, and he's interested in what happens. We, you have this very diverse religious and the founder of Pennsylvania is partly responsible, right? Uh, Penn for this, right? That was part of the founding tenets. They're going to allow religious freedom. Uh, but you get all these groups who come together to fight for the revolution. And then what happens to them after the revolution? Where they now have to renegotiate their relationship to each other, to the former mother country, where many of the, what? The homeland, the base denominations of these faces are based. 
Um, so I think that promises to be a really interesting uh, talk. He's also interested in, in new denominations that are more like the AME, African American Methodist Episcopal Church uh, in Philadelphia in the wake of the revolution. September 24th, Thursday, Terry Booten will give a talk, Foreign Founders, How European Financiers Checked America's Democratic Experiment. His award-winning book, I forgot to do the thing, uh, Taming Democracy, People, the Founders, and the Troubled Ending of the American Revolution is a fascinating study of the debt that we owe to those um, who were not the founding fathers, but did the bad, did the fighting, lost their resources, those on the grassroots who helped contribute to the revolution, and then many of whom thought what they fought for had been sold out after the revolution. So he's going to talk to you about post-revolutionary anxieties in the grassroots. Uh, Apocalypse on Market Street, Women's Space in the Revolutionary City. Kate Davies from Newcastle University in, in England is going to give that talk. This is a fascinating um, study that she's working on where she's looking at all kinds of different archival materials, manuscripts, architecture, textiles, um, different kinds of landscape uh, culture. Uh, drawings, paintings, et cetera, that inform her research to explore women's political and cultural place in revolutionary Philadelphia. October 8th, Thursday, Wars for Independence, Pennsylvanians and Native Americans, 1750 to 1800. Dan Richter, who's director of the McNeil Center for Early American Studies at UPenn, uh, author of many books about European-American, Native American uh, relations. There, goes, there I go again. Um, he's going to talk about European Native American relations from 1750 to 1800. What's interesting about Dan's work, kind of like Kate Davies, is they access really innovative archival materials. And so what he tries to do is by looking at missionary tracts and other kinds of texts, is tell, native, tell the Native American story, even as that's very hard to do, right? Because we don't have a lot of text in their own words. Um, so he's, he's written a book on Native Americans, Pennsylvania, and I assume that some of the talk will be drawn from some of that research. October 15th, Thursday, My Brethren of the Quill, Writing and Revolution Among the Irish in Philadelphia. Rochelle Zuck, who studied under Carla Mulford, uh, is an assistant professor of English now at uh, University of Minnesota Duluth. So she's one of our proud and prominent graduates in the last couple of years in Penn State. Um, and she's doing some work that draws on the uh, writings of early, Amer early Irish Americans editors and so on living in Philadelphia at the time in the 1790s when the Alien and Sedition Acts were in place, right? When the Federalists and John Adams were deporting people and, and up, up, upping the requirements for citizenship, right? And what she's finding is that if you look at the Irish as a group and the different kinds of writing they're producing, that there's no static Irish-American identity. They're writing from a lot of different kinds of perspectives, which trouble the very notion of a definable American citizenship. So I think this will be an exciting talk, a new kind of talk, a work to, to hear about. This is a painting, Charles Wilson Peel. I'm hoping we can use this for the symposium um, uh, and forum that is not part of the Weiss seminar technically, but there will be a, uh, you're all invited to come, uh, right? October 22nd and 23rd, there will be a two-day event, a forum and followed by a, a symposium entitled Franklin's Philadelphia, uh, the arts and sciences in the age of revolution, or science and the arts in the age of revolution. So I chose this portrait because Peel's so intricately bound up in that, right? He founded the Philadelphia Museum, and you see, like, the natural history work that he did. He's got, like, big dinosaur jawbones here. Where's my thing? There. He's got a dead wild turkey here. And his, you know, museum, which, you know, if you're Philadelphia College of Musicians and, and the Motor Museum, you'll see some of these artifacts from Peel that he collected. But he's also an outstanding portrait painter. So the idea of revolution in the arts and sciences, um, in literature and theater, that will be the focus of that, or will complement what we're doing here in the Weiss, and you're, you're all invited. We'll have some more publicity about that soon, that event that will come out of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities. Um, on October 29th, Thursday, Philadelphia faces the Haitian Revolution. Ashley White is just about to publish a book in Johns Hopkins Press entitled Encountering Revolution, Haiti and the Making of the Early Republic. She's interested essentially in the cultural, economic, and other kinds of relations that occur between Haiti, formerly Saint-Domingue, and North America in the wake of the Haitian Revolution. She told me, I'll be playing around with the notion of facing in the talk. So I don't know what that means. Physiognomy, uh, it could be anything. 
Um, November 5th, Thursday, Hemispheric Independence, Spanish language writing in early Philadelphia. Rodrigo Lazo, who wrote a book about exiled Cubans in antebellum America, uh, writing and demanding independence from their North American locations, is now researching a pro an early American project in the period that we're talking about on Spanish writing and Spanish American presences in Philadelphia. Um, so he'll be talking, uh, giving a talk from that project. Then Clarence, who I referenced earlier, right? Clarence Maxwell, he's working on the Millersville project. Um, he will be giving uh, a talk entitled Bermuda in the Age of Revolution. He's interested in the, the Atlantic world of smuggling and Bermuda's involvement in that, specifically enslaved sailor involvement in that uh, smuggling, the smuggling trades. Uh, this is a Bermuda sloop right here, which were faster than bigger ships, and they were used to smuggle things. And down here, you can't see it, but this is a slave, a couple of slaves, and these would be the kind of merchant slaves that would have been involved in the smuggling operations. The West Indies Commerce in a Revolution in the Early American Theory. This is an early drawing by William Birch, who's an important uh, illustrator in the, in the New Republic period, Philadelphia illustrator. Uh, I'll be talking about, as I gestured to earlier, the influence of the West Indies on theater and performance culture at large in Philadelphia. The Quaker City in the Sea, Philadelphia and Oceanic Literature and History, coming on December 3rd to a theater near you, this theater in particular. Um, this is Hester Bloom, my colleague, who's in the room today. Uh, and she, you see on my left, your right, her award-winning book, View from the Masthead, Maritime Imagination, and Antebellum Sea Narratives. She's the first one to really explore the unique contribution of seamen to literature and culture in the antebellum period. And she has a fascinating analytic that she used in the book, which is to talk about the intimate relationship between labor and the literary uh, to produce kind of unique kinds of narratives. Um, and what she'll speak on, and I'm quoting her here, is a coherent body of American sea literature, the first coherent body, of American sea literature, Barbary captivity narratives produced by sailors who had been held captive or enslaved in Africa in the 1790s, right? Particularly in North African Barbary states. And she's gonna talk in more precise terms about some Philadelphia uh, sailors who were captives and lived to tell about it in interesting ways. Uh, and then December 10th, our final class, closing four. We're already sad and we haven't even gotten there. Uh, a group discussion. We'll do like a community read discussion of a recently published book, The Whiskey Rebels by David Liss. He's the best-selling author of Conspiracy of Paper, The Coffee Trader. Um, that, this, this book is, oops, that's okay. I'll go back. But this book has two stories that converge at the end, right? The first is the, the story of Ethan Saunders, who is an ex-revolutionary war veteran didn't like Alexander Hamilton, but ironically comes to spy on behalf of Hamilton. Hamilton, who at the time is engaged in a bitter struggle with Jefferson to over who's, whether the Bank of the United States is going to take place or not, be founded. And Joan Maycott, who lives in Western Pennsylvania. She's the wife of an ex-Revolutionary War veteran who has war bonds that won't be paid. And what they do is they trade those war bonds in for land. And what they do on that land is what? Produce a new kind of money, whiskey. Hamilton catches wind of it, and he wants in, and he taxes that whiskey, and this creates problems. And there are two stories, uh, Joan Maycott's story and Ethan Saunders' converge in rather fascinating, interesting ways. Uh, obviously, it's set in the post-revolutionary war period, a point of scheming and economic, sound familiar? Substitute Iraq and... Wall Street. Um, and so I do think in a weird way, it's, it's a text that does speak to our own moment, uh, and, and you'll find it fascinating on those, those kinds of levels. So that's what you have ahead of you. Thanks for hanging in there. That's a lot, a lot to go through. Do we have any